Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha, especially if it's your first Sunday here, or second maybe if you're newer to our church. Uh, Spence said earlier, we're glad you guys are here uh, for one of our services today. Um, again, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors. Um, we are, uh, I think a lot of you are aware, probably not all of you, in a uh, kind of a summer series right now of miscellaneous sermons, which we occasionally do for, for summers, uh, where all of the elders will get a chance to preach at some point at least once this summer. All of our, uh, we, call, we call them vocational elders or pastors, myself and Spencer, or, uh, or lay elders. Uh, Peter, Jesse, and, and Chris Thompson are other three elders, so you'll hear from all of them as well. But it's a uh, kind of a hodgepodge in terms of themes. We, uh, we're just giving the, the freedom to all the elders to select what they want to preach on. And so you hear from a, a number of topics and texts uh, this summer before going into a new series this fall on the book of Galatians starting after Labor Day. So that's our preaching uh, schedule for the foreseeable future here. So, um, so today I'm going to look at uh, Psalm 23, as Peter is saying. Um, I'm probably personally, in terms of what I'm going to do this summer, when I'm preaching is preach through a few psalms, probably at least, uh, I think two for sure, probably three, uh, if not more, So, uh, which I kind of like to do in summer times or between series if we can. Uh, preaching through all the psalms at once in orders, 150 of them, if you didn't know, would be uh, kind of an arduous task and maybe a bit excessive, so... Uh, we like to sprinkle them in uh, here, here and there and reference them when the Bible does. And if you didn't know this, the Bible references them quite a bit in the New Testament. Uh, they're, they're cited often uh, as a, uh, a warrant for understanding the life of Christ, actually. And I'll, I'll mention uh, someone else's words on that in just a second. But uh, So today is uh, Psalm 23, this theme of dining with enemies I'm going to focus on. There's a lot going on in the psalm, but we'll, we'll come back to that uh, throughout and, uh, and to end. But just a quick crash course on the psalms if you're new to them. They are pretty much right in the middle of your Bible, so if you want to turn there to Psalm 23 uh, in your Bibles, or on, if you've got them on your phone apps, that's great too, but if you're in a uh, book format Bible, pretty much right in the middle, Psalm 23. The Psalms are one of five wisdom books, we call them, of the Old Testament, a, a collection of what are essentially prophetic songs. So when you think of Psalms, think of a, 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 po- a poetry or a, a psalm-like prophecy uh, written between 1400 BC and 1000 BC by, by multiple author, authors, but primarily by an ancient Middle Eastern king named David who lived around 1000 BC. And I say prophetic songs because one, they're songs, and two, they, like all Old Testament literature, point beyond themselves to Christ. Uh, Gerald H. Wilson kind of referenced this earlier already, but he says about the Psalms in the Christian New Testament, so the, the Psalms are in the Old Testament. In the Christian New Testament, no book is cited more often as a warrant for understanding the life of Jesus and other aspects of New Testament theology than the book of Psalms. Really important for us to understand about a book that we can tend to read ourselves into maybe more than we should. We should read ourselves into them, but maybe more than, than we should. So when we ask the question, how does the New Testament read the Psalms? Uh, the answer is from the, from the book itself, from the end of the book itself, is as if it were Christ's hymn book. And so have that in mind as we read this psalm, whether you've heard it a thousand times or never, have that in mind. Uh, we are in it, uh, but especially it is uh, ahead of time, the words of Christ by one of Jesus' uh, ancestors, King David. So let's read Psalm 23 first uh, in, in its entirety, and we'll, we'll come back. So Psalm 23, there we go. Of David... The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right, so just as a reminder here, I'm going to take uh, two angles on this passage, which we, we, we do a lot here because the Bible does this to itself, but we do this a lot. One of our philosophies and perspectives on interpretation as a church is that a lot of times in narrative and things like this, psalms like this in the, the Old Testament, there are a couple of angles. One, more of a human angle on a passage like this. In other words, what does that have to say about us and our experience as Christians or sinners or people just created beings before a good and holy creator? But then a divine side as well, and that is to say, where is Christ? Where are some deeper themes here that might be a little bit more embedded uh, or hidden, but serve as a bit of a prophecy or a foreshadowing of Jesus? And so what I want to do then in light of that is look at this psalm as though it's a prayer of a man, but also as though it's the prayer of Christ. Or as though it's an example, maybe a model prayer, an example of our experiences as as Christians or people who are becoming Christians or interested in the faith, whatever uh, is true about you today. But then also, uh, it is gospel. It's good news. Because it's about Christ, it's his words as God the Son before God the Father. It's gospel news as well, or, or good news. So we'll start first with uh, the idea that Psalm 23 is the prayer song of a man. It is uh, the prayer really a beforehand of a Christian and, and two believers, the way the psalm begins in the first verse, which we just heard a song on in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so, as we think about this as Christians, this is really ahead of time a prayer of a believer. Uh, God is like a shepherd to Christians. It doesn't say in verse 1 that the Lord is my boss, or my judge, or my life coach, or my inspirational speaker. But the Lord is my shepherd, he's my leader, here's my caretaker, he's gentle with me like a shepherd is to sheep. As Jesus says later in the book in the New Testament himself, in John 10, 14 to 16, Jesus says this about himself, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And so really simply here, Jesus is just saying, this is who I am. Jesus is a good shepherd. He's good. And maybe a bit crazy. Shepherds don't usually lay down their actual lives for sheep. But Jesus is better. So he's good, maybe a little bit uh, crazy or intense, but that's a good kind of crazy. Uh, We we need a shepherd who's going to lay down his life for uh, lesser beings, uh, created beings, people like us. We'll come back to that here in a little bit. So it's a prayer of believers. God is like a shepherd. And and David's prayer here is saying, because he's a shepherd like this, I shall not want. In the face of the fact that he's good, in the face of the fact that he's a caretaker, in the face of the fact that he's a shepherd, I shall actually have no ultimate ultimate wants. And, And like in John 10, note here who the active party is in the psalm. Let's go back to it. Look at it. Who's the active party? This is huge for a psalm like this. God is entirely said to be the active party. Sheep, to go back to that illustration or metaphor, biblical one, 
Sheep don't have much to give to shepherds, but everything to receive. So in this psalm, as in John 10, but in today's psalm, Psalm 23, he, God, makes us lie down. He, God, leads us beside waters. He, God, restores our soul. He, God, leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He, God, is with us through dark times. He comforts us. He prepares a table for us. He lets his mercy follow us. See how that's good news? It's not about us. This is about David recognizing the character of God as a shepherd. This is the way he's shepherding. He's working out his shepherding role in these capacities. It just simply wouldn't be as worshipful or nearly as powerful for us if the focus was human effort. And this is a song. It's like we say here at Hiawatha about our worship songs. Peter's very careful and leadership's very careful to select certain songs that we sing as a church. And there's a lot of Christian music out there, not all of which is worshipful. It's not as worshipful to sing about us or our response to God's goodness. It's not always wrong to do that, but in church we select songs that are about God, about his characteristics, about what he has done, how he's led, how he's been good to us. That's a worshipful thought. Or informative in the right sense of the word, at least, for people that are kicking the tires of the faith. But to sing about us, about our response, is uh, secondary at, at best. And so this is part of what it means for a Christian to pursue joy, like David is. And, to th- and that is to think in the right way about God. This is what he's doing. David's saying to himself, to his soul, that he is like this. God is like these things. And so he writes them down. He writes a poem, he writes a song, and he sings them. And our relationship, and this is true for us as well as people of God, our relationship with God is based on what he has to offer, not on what we have to offer him. This is what David's saying. His relationship is based on what God has to offer him, based on his goodness and his sufficiency, not on what we have to offer him. And so he's, he's writing as, you could say, kind of a, a pre-Christian, they didn't call him that yet, but a, a person of God, a man of faith, person of faith. He's writing these things to his heart, kind of reinforce what he already knew. He's reminding himself of that. That's a really great model for us. A lot of psalms are like this. They don't all fit in the exact same uh, category. But for those of you who are, well, even if you're very, very much familiar with them, but, but especially if you're not, understand this about the psalms. They're written by people of God. They're written by, by kings and choir masters underneath the kind of the, the hand of the king and, and inspired individuals who knew these things but were reminding themselves of them in song form. They're reinforcing them to their own heart. And so David especially, if you know anything about David, you know that's true. David reminds himself of these things. And I think they fall into a couple of categories when we talk about reminding. The first is God is sufficient. And that comes from that idea of I shall not want. It's a great phrase. Love it. David says in the first verse, this is who God is. God's a good shepherd. And because of that, I shall not want. And so this is not saying that with God there is no other desire or need or want ever, but it is a reminder that the greater thing outweighs and qualifies the lesser things. It's like excitement for a wedding day might outweigh a bad day at work. You know, at least I have my fiancé, you know, we, we might think. And this psalm uses the phrase, even though, it's the same idea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Love that imagery. Think Moria in Lord of the Rings. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though that's the case, I have God. Even though I go through the worst of things, I will fear no evil for, because you are with me. Or or we might say in New Testament terms, the gospel saves us from fear. Because in 1 John it says, perfect love, God's love, which is perfect and identifying for us, drives out fear. We have less to fear now. We don't fear death. We don't fear punishment. We don't fear abandonment from God. As one of those songs said, when God promises deliverance for those who believe in his son, and then it undergirds it with, God can't lie. He can't go back on his word. And so we put our trust in that. It's, it's the same here. In New Testament terms, the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died for our sins, the perfect love of God that's in that event, that Christ event, drives out Fear. We'll still fear, but we have less fear. And as we think about the love of God, it's hard for fear to kind of coexist with our reflection on that perfect love. And so the psalmists sing this way, and so should we. We are fearful people. I'm a fearful person. The way to drive out fear is to think about the perfect love and characteristic of God. That's the only way. Fear and love are at odds. And so we, we can kind of experience this in human terms, too, when we have love in a human relationship, imperfect, in a, in a marriage or a friendship, but how much more with God, who has a perfect kind of love, not an imperfect, not a flawed, not a fleeting love, but a perfect kind. We might also say, too, in, in New Testament terms, the gospel saves us from the sin of covetousness. So we think about, I shall not want... We think of coveting, wanting something we shouldn't want, or wanting someone else's possessions, wanting their home, wanting their, the fact that they're married, wanting the fact that they're, they have fertility, they're able to have kids, wanting the fact that they have uh, this, this great job, or a place in the city they live in, or, or it's just stuff, boat, or whatever it is. We can covet these things. The gospel is the only thing that can free us from that because, and to use this even though idea, even though... We will fear no evil. Even though these things happen or these things are out there, we'll fear no evil. We will, we will not want because we have God. We would say because we're rich in grace. We have everything we'll ever need. We may not always feel that as Christians, but the, what the truth of the matter is, is the Bible says in Christ, when we're saved, we've been lavished upon by God's riches, the spiritual riches. We've been given everything we'll ever need, everything will ever need. And so we covet less because we believe in Christ and, and before God we're rich spiritually. We have everything we'll ever need. Actually, as we think about good works as well, it's a verse in 1 Peter 1, I believe, somewhere in the Peters, uh, where it says, you've been given everything you'll ever need to live a godly life in, in Christ Jesus. Everything you'll ever need. We're equipped in a sufficient, sufficient manner. Or also when God tells the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians, when God says this, to a man who's suffering deeply, and David is too, and we'll we'll come back to that, but to a man who's suffering deeply and who pleads to God to take away this thorn from his flesh, what's his words? What's God's response? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. It's it's a a follow-up, a compliment to the I shall not want idea. I'm suffering deeply, but I have God's grace. Even though I suffer deeply with this thorn, I have everything I'll ever need in in the grace of God. So 
will have wants and needs, but in general, all of them are qualified and lessened in the face of the fact that God truly has come into the world to bleed on a cross for us and to show his love for us in that. He's come to rescue us and call us sons and daughters and rescue us out of the camp of the devil. So that's the first thing, God's sufficiency. This is what David's reminding himself of and writing down in Psalm 23. God is sufficient, so I shall not want. And then secondly and relatedly, he reminds himself of God's goodness, the goodness of God. Psalm 23 is is not the prayer of a man who needed comfort to affirm God's inherent goodness. It's really important. Psalm 23 is not the prayer of a man who needed comfort to affirm God's inherent goodness. You guys see that here? He's suffering deeply and affirming his goodness. He suffers and he also recognizes the good gifts that he has to give, which is another great model for prayer and just the way we think as Christian thinkers, Christian livers, people who are, who are saved, is that God is the God of the green grass, and he's also the God of the valleys of the shadows. He gives the former, and he's with us through the latter. He gives the grass, he gives the water, and he's with us and over, sovereign over, the idea you get with God walking through you, uh, with you through the valley of the shadow of death is that he's in control. He's good. He'll bring us out safely somehow on, on the other side. And so I think, I think psalms like this just pose the question to us, wherever we are spiritually, do you believe this about God? He's the God of the green grass, and he's the God of the valleys of the shadows. That he's, There's not a speck of evil within him. Yet he's the God who is sovereign over both, giving of the green grass and with us through the valleys. And also kind of complementing that, I think, um, again, so much of this you could say about any of the Psalms, so just apply this to the way that you read other ones as well. But, but this one, yeah, I think we need to affirm that truths are more important than feelings about those truths. Truths are more important than feelings about those truths. In other words, David, as a sinful man, certainly did not always believe that God was good. He didn't always believe that God was enough. Or maybe even that God was going to be able to fully save him in the end. But he affirms these things nonetheless in prayer. I mean, if that isn't descriptive of the Christian life and experience, I don't know what is. You know, these things are so gloriously true, but I have, tr- I have trouble believing them. It's hard for me to believe them. That's why the Psalms can resonate, I think, so much. This guy's a sinner, not a perfect man of faith. You know, if you know his story, he was a murderer and an adulterer. David was a murderer and an adulterer and a bunch of other things. He was a mess, an absolute mess. And it, yet he's affirming these things about God. Notice he doesn't come to God saying, I'm amazing. He can't. He can't. If he's at all blameless, at all right before God, it's because God has declared it as such. He's done that. He's, he's been a shepherd to him. He's led him out of his sin. He's been with him through those times. And so we see David's heart's change in his story as well. Not a lot of time for, to consult that, but some of you know that story. His heart changes. He's a man after God's own heart, actually the scriptures say, which is an amazing thing to say. It's not said about anybody else really, except Christ, you could say, but 
So David as a sinful man didn't always believe these things, but he, he affirms them nonetheless in song and in prayer. He's not a man tossed to and fro by circumstance and feeling. It's, it's a great thing here. It's a great just, you know, affirmation of, the, of this healthy, mature way of thinking. Suffering didn't come, and he throws the whole thing out. God can't be good now. He must not be with me. The green waters mean nothing. His theology is big enough to allow for both. His God is big enough to allow for God being good, the giver of all good gifts, and somehow with him and in control through the dark times, not aloof. The reality is, it says, this is true for you and me too, God is with us through suffering. Not a billion miles away in the cosmos, just twiddling his thumbs, kind of just looking back and, what's going to happen? He's with us. It's, it's, the, it's a picture of, this intimate picture of God through difficulty. So that kind of leads here into the tension. This will serve as a bit of a um, link between these two parts of, of the, uh, the sermon, as I talked about earlier. The tension, um, and I'll speak for myself, and it's true for you guys too, but uh, as I was reading the psalm this week, um, and any, again, any psalm, but Part of the problem for me in a psalm like this is that they present ways of thinking about God that stand in stark contrast to the ways that I tend to think about him sometimes. I do want too much. The psalm begins, I shall not want, but I do want. I want things all the time I shouldn't. A million times a day. I do in my sleep, in my dreams. I want all the time. I don't rest in God's sufficiency of, uh, or his sufficiency of his grace. I don't rest in that. You know, how, how often do you trust in God perfectly through an intense season of suffering? So, so part of the solution to this is, is just continuing to affirm God's goodness, that he is at work, as we talked about, reminding ourselves. But part of it actually has to do more with realizing this psalm is actually not about you. It's not about me. There are examples in this psalm of dining with enemies, God preparing a table before you that you might dine with your enemies, anointing your head with oil. Uh, There's aspects of this psalm that are less applicable. Uh, This is poetry, and we'll, we'll come back to this. We can see our experience sort of in this, but not as readily. Anointing the head with oil, which is a kingly thing. When you're anointed with oil, that was a kingly idea. And dining, uh, God preparing a table that you might eat with your worst of enemies. These things are less immediately applicable to our experience. So, So part of the resolving of the tension here, which is partly our sin, and partly how do we understand this in our life, has to do with realizing this psalm actually is not about us. So that takes us to this next and better section. Uh, Psalm 23 is the prayer song of a man, but not just that. It is the prayer song of the true and better David, who is the Christ. And so we'll, we'll start with David here. A couple of things if, uh, to remind you for a lot of you, but if you don't know about David and his story, uh, read the books of First and Second Samuel and a lot of the Psalms, and you'll get a great uh, kind of synopsis of that. King David, uh, who is king of, king of Israel, around 1000 B.C., he's, he's writing a psalm 
So verse 0, to be clear, those verse zeros in your Bibles, those are actually part of the psalm. They're not an editor's kind of a summative heading. Uh, but those are actually part of the psalm. So David wrote of David. He's titling it. So David wrote this out of his own experiences. This is part of what we ask when we interpret the Bible is, you know, what's David thinking here? David's writing about his own experiences. So if you know a little bit about David, again, you know he was known as a suffering king. He suffered more than any of the kings. He suffered a ton. His own family rejected him. His own son sought to overthrow his rule, staged a coup against him. He was threatened continually. He lost children to death. He was betrayed by close friends. Many others tried to kill him on multiple occasions. He experienced the horrors of war over and over and over again. But he also saw many victories. And he experienced deep intimacy with God and was eventually anointed king. The reference to uh, dining with enemies is, is actually an allusion to when he had one of his arch enemies, Saul's descendants, named Mephibosheth, dine with him. Uh, Saul was king before David, was jealous of David, so sought to kill him to ensure his kind of continual reign. He dies, Saul does, and David eventually takes the throne. After that, David asks, is there anyone in the house of Saul I can show kindness to? He's asking his servants. Anyone still alive in Saul's family? So I can show kindness to them? Again, think arch enemy. Which of his kids are alive? Or his grandkids? Uh, D- David has this, uh, this is a bit of a sidebar too, but he has this uh, knack, for lack of a better word, uh, for showing kindness to people you wouldn't expect. People are trying to, uh, his own son, trying to over, o- overrun him, stage a coup against him, kill him. When his son dies, uh, one of his many kids who are killed, he mourns. There are people under David trying to say, but you should rejoice. He's dead. And David says, why would I rejoice? It's my son. And many people like that, non-family people who are killed, when, when you think, we should rejoice. Your enemy, this commander of this opposing army has been killed. And David said, why would I rejoice the death of anybody? And he seeks to show patience and kindness. Uh, Mephibosheth here, uh, in one verse actually, Mephibosheth understands the unprecedented nature and almost unfathomable nature of this kindness when he says in 2 Samuel 9, 8, Mephibosheth paid homage, this this, by the way, Mephibosheth is uh, Saul's grandson, paid homage to David and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Who am I? I'm the grandson of the man who sought to kill you over and over and over again. Now you're making me eat right alongside your actual sons. Unfathomable kindness. And this is where we start to see where the psalm's actually headed. This is what David's, at least in part, thinking and referencing. He actually did dine literally with his enemies and the the sons of his enemies. This is where we start to see where the psalm's actually headed. Now think about this, especially verses 4 to 6. Just hang with me. The trajectory of the psalm, right within the psalm, especially from verses 4 to 6, is from these these four things. From suffering through a valley of, of death, to being anointed king, to dining with enemies, and then going to be with God in his house. 
Who does that sound like to you? It's not hard to see, or it's not as hard to see, when we operate under the premise that the Bible is not about us. See, Jesus, too, as a man, claimed God's sufficiency against the temptations of the devil. He perfectly did not want. He was led by the Spirit on the ultimate path of righteousness, the path of the cross, for God's fame's sake. He too, Jesus did, suffered through a valley of death, his own death, and he was then raised to be anointed king. And he made a practice of dining with enemies, in fact, whose death and resurrection made possible an air of peace and intimacy between God and sinners. And then who ascended to be with God his Father in heaven. And here's what makes all of this such good news. If this is actually more about Jesus' experiences or the second David's, the son of David's experiences, one of the names for Christ in the New Testament, the son of David's experiences ahead of time, more about his than ours, then we are the enemies in this psalm. This is, see, this is not about us thinking, well, who are the enemies in my life that God will help me to eat with? It's actually, this is about Jesus praying this to God his Father and, and dining with enemies of whom we are the foremost. This is what the good news is. Every time Jesus dines with people in the New Testament, he's technically dining with his enemies, who he is showing undeserved kindness to, who he's winning over with his love, making them into his friends. That's a really important part of our understanding of the gospel accounts in the New Testament is Christ is loving and redeeming people who are at odds with him, enemies, sinners, not people who deserve to be loved. He actually calls... uh, particular camp of people, but it applies to all of us. He calls people uh, sons and daughters of the devil. doesn't mince words. It's part of what the gospel is, is taking us, rescuing us from the camp of being in the family of, of Satan and making us sons and daughters of God. And it cost him his life to do it. So this is one way to understand what the gospel is. Jesus, every time he eats with people, is dining with enemies, us. We are enemies of God. And so the Bible says in Mark 2, when he, uh, actually this is a a derogatory term uh, at first from the Pharisees, but in Mark 2, Jesus is called friend of sinners. But like a lot of times the Pharisees don't know what they're saying. They're kind of speaking beyond the derogatory uh, kind of unintended meaning of what they're saying. And and like they're exactly right. Uh, They're thinking, that's a terrible thing, but, you know, God's thinking that's an amazing thing, and and so do we, or should we, when we read. And it becomes the ground then, too, in the second uh, part, the ground for the Christian ethic to love enemies. So Jesus says in Luke 6, love your enemies, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for, this is why we are to do it, for God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, i.e., his enemies. Because God is kind to the evil. He's talking about us. God is kind, like David was, in an imperfect way to his enemies, like Christ is perfectly to us, those who are enemies of God. He's kind. He's patient. He's slow to be angry. 
He died on a cross for our sins to bring us in and back to himself. That's God's posture towards us, you guys. That's, even though we're, we're ungrateful, even though we misunderstand, we are enemies who are made friends. And so see, without this principle, the gospel isn't as gospel-y. If Jesus is just treating us like we deserve when he loves us, how is that scandalous, earth-shaking kind of love? How does it require blood? If we deserve, if we're not enemies, and if we're, in his eyes, pretty good people, deserving to be loved, how does that require his life? How does that fit with definitions in the Bible about the love of God being scandalous, offensive? It doesn't. We have to be enemies for the New Testament to make sense and for the love of God to be shown perfectly and beautifully. You know, how, how will the idea of, you know, we deserve the love of God lead us to worship? It won't. How will that idea get us outside of ourselves so we can love our enemies too? See, the only way, and this is what Jesus is getting at in Luke 6, the only way to be empowered to love people who hate you, who you'd never want to hang out with and eat with, the only way is to know that God has first done that for us. To be moved by that. It's the only way. If God didn't do it, but just says do it, how will that be kind of impressed upon us to do it? How will we be empowered to do that? Christians are the only ones who are ultimately, by the help of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, empowered to love enemies and dine with them. Because we know that God did that with us. We're his enemies. And Jesus, as this second and better David, the ultimate end game of Psalm 23, ahead of time, Jesus is seen as this uh, lover of our souls, this one who is willingly going to suffer. And on the, the tail end of his suffering, the tail end of his walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he's going to be able to eat with sinners, which is exactly what you see in the Gospels. You, you see this all the time. Jesus, if he does one thing, is he breaks bread and eats with sinners. And after his resurrection, too, he does this. He has breakfast with his disciples and, and eats time and time again with those he reveals himself to. So Bible, again, I think what, what it says to us with this principle, it, it almost just asks us, you tell me, you tell me, what is more powerful, strange, or moving? When someone takes a bullet for a friend, or when someone takes a bullet for an enemy. When someone takes a bullet for a friend, or when someone takes a bullet for an enemy. Which is more strange, moving, and powerful? See, the Bible says in, in Romans 8, or 5, God's love is shown to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were good, while we were still enemies. See, sinners are enemies of God. While we were still sinners, that's when Christ died. And that's when the love of God is shown. And so what Psalm 23 ends up being then is, is this uh, glimpse into this kind of eternal, glorious conversation amongst the triune Godhead. God being one God but existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in regards to our salvation. As the prayer of Christ, Psalms 23 is a glimpse into uh, this conversation. God the Son is talking to God the Father, even praising him 
for masterfully, somehow, making it possible for his enemies to eat with him again. All in the tail end of his suffering. Actually, uh, one help here too, if um, uh, this is a new paradigm shift for you, is to look at Psalm 22. Uh, Psalm 22 is a, um, a masterpiece. It's a Psalm of David, but a masterpiece of, uh, of a theology of Christ's suffering. It's a, it's a psalm that Christ references and quotes on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm that references his friends leaving him and casting lots for his clothes. Clear, explicit depictions of Jesus. And this psalm is right after it. We should have the same mindset when we read it. See, David suffered and was raised an anointed king after that suffering, who dines with sinners. So does his son, Jesus, even more so. So Psalm 23 then, and the point to the idea that what I think makes this such gospel-y news, uh, good news, is that what we see in Jesus' prayer, as a, as a prayer of Christ, Psalm 23, is we see his desire that God would dine, that he would dine with his enemies again. You know, if it's his desire, if he's praising God, you know, think of uh, Gethsemane, think of um, when Jesus is praying about his suffering, think of when he spends a lot of time in prayer in his ministry, we don't know exactly what he prayed, but he rejoices at times, he rejoices when he, he sees God, his Father, reveal truth to people that you wouldn't expect him to, little children, and yet hiding them from the wise. Actually, a couple of times in the Gospels, you see the phrase, and Jesus rejoiced exceedingly. And one of the times is when he realizes he's praying to God his Father, he says, this is to your good and glorious pleasure, God, my Father, that you would reveal salvation to little kids, but hide it from the wise and learned. It's one of the two times Jesus, we see written explicitly where Jesus rejoices and praises his Father. So in the spirit of that, we see this psalm. David writing this but it's Christ's hymn book ultimately. It's eternal and glorious conversation between the Son and the Father where Jesus and God are wanting this to happen. Jesus wants to save you right now in this very room. He loves you guys deeply and me and, and he spilt his blood to show it. Not while we were lovable, but while we were still enemies and sinners and not reciprocating those initial demonstrations of love. And so to wrap this up then, a couple things here uh, in conclusion. And let me summarize it this way, Psalm 23. The center of Christianity is not that God will be with you through valleys of shadow of death, but rather that he himself walked through the ultimate valley of death on that cross 2,000 years ago. That's the center of the faith. Not the former, but the latter. And then who was raised up, anointed king of the universe and our souls, and who made us, his enemies, his friends. That's the gospel. It's the center of the faith and the trajectory of Psalm 23. In that way, he shepherds us. So his shepherding then for us then, in Psalm 23, it is more vague. When, when uh, God is called a shepherd, it's a vague, generalist idea. But not in John 10. Not when Jesus talks about shepherding. When Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd, he says, this is what good shepherds do. They lay down their life for the sheep. 
So whenever we think, whenever you guys and me think about shepherding in a biblical way the rest of our lives, we should not go to a vague place of, yeah, generally speaking, God's shepherding me, which may be some half-truths there or whatever, but rather that the way he's shepherding me is by walking through a valley of shadow of death himself, ahead of us, aside from us, being killed and being raised, anointed, cup overflowing, and now possible because that, that sin barrier has been removed to actually dine with, with us again. Shepherding, according to the Bible, shepherding and laying down the life are linked. The way that Christ shepherds, again, whispered in Psalm 23, shouted in John 10, and shouted even louder when he's actually dying on, on that cross. Only then, only then, can this become our prayer? And I think it can. Uh, but only then, only after that, can this become our prayer as Christians when we are in Christ. Because then, too, God, God is our shepherd when we become a son or a daughter of God. Then, too, God can give meaning to our suffering. Like, David's sufferings had a lot of meaning. His sufferings imaged Jesus's, and ours can, too. They can have purpose. Then, too, God can grant us the power to love in a way that the world can't even begin to comprehend. And this, this is one of the stronger ethics we get. When, when Jesus talks about love, he's very serious about it. Uh, belief and love are the two biggies for Christians. Believe the gospel and love others. Love has this qualification, though. It's, it's love the church, love the people of God especially, especially those within the church who are your enemies, who are hard to love and outside. And so he actually says, what good is it when you love people who love you? Don't, don't non-believers do that? See, this is why we know that we're enemies of God and why when he loved us, we were, we were not lovable because when God talks about love, he talks about it as two very different kinds of parties. At odds parties, love being shown to reconcile. But this is not a kind of love that the world shows and that we as those of you who are Christians in the room, even we, we're not inclined to do this much at all, right? This is the only way we can, the only power, the only freedom we have is to be moved by the fact that we, though we were enemies, God's, God didn't say, well, they've done too much bad, so I'm going to sort of judge them, have a posture of judgment. I'm going to estrange them. But rather, he moved towards us even to the point of death. And this is that, that radical, offensive impossible to live out perfectly, but guess what? It's not about you guys or me, remember? It's about Christ who did this for you first. Be moved by that. It's only then this can become our psalm. Only then. It's not about you first. Not about me first. Jesus first. Only then when we're moved by the gospel embedded within it can we have the power to love in a way, the hope in a prayer of dining with our enemies, but love in a way the world can't even begin to comprehend. And so the psalm says, believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus has died for your sins and you'll be saved. Pray and model your prayers in a way after this psalm. Remind yourselves of the truths of God and his characteristics to drive out fear and covetousness. And then three, go and so live with this kind of love. You know, as you guys do this, as you dine with people, dine literally or figuratively with people who are, you're at odds with, the, the world will take notice. And even if they don't, God will. 
That, that is one of the most earth-shattering things you can do as a Christian human being ever in your life. You know, aside from just believing the gospel itself is loving, but not just loving, loving your enemies, lo- loving in that manner because, praise be to God, God has loved us as enemies and made us his friends. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, so much for this psalm today. Thank you for uh, writing it with many layers. Thank you, Father, that it, it speaks to our experience, but even more to yours. Uh, Jesus is as the, the, the son of David, the ultimate fulfiller of these things, the one who truly went through death to resurrection to ascension. In the meantime, uh, dining intimately with sinners. That's the goal of our salvation, to be with God again, to break bread with him with no more in-between, no more separation, no more veil, no more temple, no more stone wall, no more sin, no more chasm, but a God who came into the world to spill his blood, to walk through a valley of shadow of death for us, who truly feared no evil, uh, and who truly, uh, with his grace, comforted, uh, filled our cups to overflowing, and uh, who brought us back from a place of being an enemy to a place of now being a friend, more than that even, an adopted son and daughter of God. So, uh, Father, help us to rejoice in the gospel and the psalm, the trajectory it takes. Thank you for being our good shepherd, and by being a good shepherd, laying down your life for the sheep. You're always better. Uh, Help us to worship now as we close the service, and God, to leave believing you, uh, praying in these right capacities, uh, and going and so living in a way that models what you've first done for us. In Christ we pray.